0: We've been threatening to do an episode about space policy for a while. It's a
1: big, scary subject, but we're going to delve into it today. Yeah, and we've got the perfect person to help us out the Planetary Society's space policy expert, Casey Dreyer. We're going to learn a lot. Casey was recommended to us from our listeners,
0: so if you have any guest ideas, please let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things
1: Podcast on threads, Instagram and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, it's time for episode 177 of the Space and Things Podcast.
0: You're listening to Space Things with
1: Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney and I'm Dave Giles. Welcome to episode 177 of our podcast. How are you doing, Emily? Good, good, good.
0: Uh I think some of our listeners know about this, but I'm starting to get ready for our trip next week to uh Washington DC. Uh, a week from now we will be there. I'm really excited about this. Uh, I have not been to Washington DC since 2002, Ooh. which is a ways <laughs> which is a while ago. Back when I went to uh, Washington DC, I'd just gotten my first the last time I got my first cell phone and it was not
1: an iPhone. We'll put it that way. It was a Nokia brick. And I thought that was awesome. I was like, yeah, this is technology. Could you even take photos on that thing? You probably had a separate digital camera or something like that, didn't you? Maybe even a film camera.
0: I think we had a crappy digital camera at the time, like a 1 pixel. <laughs> yeah. Like a like a 1 pixel digital camera. So we 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 had our first digital camera, but at the time that was high tech. It yeah. was a big like wow, 2 pixels? This is awesome. Wow. <laughs> No, seriously, uh, I'm very excited. Like I said, I have not been there in ages. Uh,
1: I'm really looking forward to seeing all the new stuff there. So how are you doing this week, Dave? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. I I feel it's rather fitting that we're going to the, the home of policy in America and we're about to talk about policy in this week's episode. So let's crack on with this week's main feature. We've been wanting to talk about space policy for a long time. How do some missions get funded and others don't? What impact does the Artemis program have on other NASA projects and missions? And what can we do to help these things happen? All these kind of questions have come up time and time again. Um, So we wanted to talk about it. Well, today we're joined by Casey Dreyer, Chief of
0: Space Policy at the Planetary Society. According to the Planetary Society website, Casey leads, the Planetary Society's advocacy and policy efforts to advance planetary exploration... Planetary Defense and the Search for Life. He educates and empowers the organization's members to take political action. He writes, teaches and speaks to the society's members, the public and policymakers to impress upon them the
1: importance, relevancy and excitement of space exploration. Casey also hosts the podcast Planetary Radio Space Policy Edition, which has been published monthly since 2016. And he has a free monthly newsletter called The Space Advocate, which has been running since 2015. Of course, I will put links to those things in the show notes. There is a lot to cover in this interview. So actually, we're going to do it over two episodes. Today, we're talking about general space advocacy, how NASA is funded, and the Artemis program. And next week, we're talking Mars and how we can all get involved. But let's get started with part one of our space policy deep dive with Casey Dreyer.
0: Burn your flight controls and hang on. Here comes the Space and Things podcast.
1: Okay. Hello, Casey. Thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the show. So we we usually start with an icebreaker. So how did you become interested in spaceflight, particularly space policy?
2: (laughs) Those are two distinct questions, Uh, (laughs) but I'll try to, to, to be quick on both of them. I have a whole soliloquy I could give you about both of them. Spaceflight, my mom shows me a scribble that she has saved from when I was three years old that I claimed was a rocket. Yeah, she doesn't know how I knew the word. I grew up in the Midwest, not a, you know, a, a hub at the time in the 1980s of spaceflight activity. <laughs> uh, I just, it, it was something in my bones. I just loved it. Uh, space policy, I'd always loved. Well, my training is in physics, which so I think uh, gives you tools for he- helping to understand The systems of the world, right? And the idea that you can find patterns behind your everyday systems that you're interacting with to help you explain, understand, and even to some degree, you know, manage and control them. And policy is actually kind of a version of that when you're looking at systems of why we do what we do as democratic societies, how we form the processes and decisions and what goes into informing those processes and decisions to create the output of these spacecraft made of metal and silicon and and solar panels and and what have you. And policy and politics was always just a a fascination of mine. And it was marrying, I realized I could marry the two of those with space to say I love space. I took enough physics to know that I would not professionally do it, (laughs) (laughs) but I could help play a part of it. As not an engineer, not a scientist, but helping to enable engineers and scientists to explore space through developing and providing assistance and developing good policy, advocating for what they're doing, and overall trying to increase the resources available to them. Uh, and, and really the, the genesis of that marriage was watching the Curiosity rover launch into space. I was uh, an adult at that time. My wife is a Mars scientist and realizing when curiosity launched that there was no real follow-up mission to it and and really committing that day and and for anyone who's been to a launch or never been to a launch it's a pretty spectacular event it was the equivalent yeah. of a of a religious experience for me and watching that first launch and and that rocket leap off the pad carrying something so Pure and inquisitive, and uh, just positive—you know—a rover to Mars, into space, never to return—was a, a powerful moment. And it was that night I vowed to do what I could to help keep more of those coming. And here I am today. I'm here, twelve years, twelve or thirteen years later.
1: Amazing. So how did how did you get into your current role? Then, so how does one end up? Doing what you do, basically, that, that's a, oh, a wonderful question and one that has
2: generally unsatisfying answers. <laughs> uh, uh, there's just a large portion of of luck and good fortune. There's not a lot of people who do space policy. It, it is a still a relatively which is always astonishing to me, frankly, because it, the U.S. alone spends nearly fifty billion, if not more than fifty billion dollars a year on space, just from government. And there's really not a lot of people doing space policy. It's it's a relatively small field. And then of people who do space policy, those who do civil, right, Mm non-defense and non-commercial, you're pro-science, you're just, you know, lopping off (laughs) segment after segment. Uh, There's just not a lot of places because there tends not to be a lot of money uh, associated with it. So there's a few organizations, nonprofits like the Planetary Society, my organization, that are not just aligned ideologically with what I'd like to see in space, but also have some resources to be able to commit to, to enabling that. Yeah. Uh, it was new leadership. Bill Nye was, had just taken the helm of the planetary society. They were looking for new people. I was moving to Los Angeles. I was able to make a good case for myself to join the organization. Once there, I I joined not necessarily as the policy guy. I was joining as an all around Fundraising, you know, helping with fundraising, with outreach and web development and member engagement, volunteer management. And over time, my job refined to purely policy and advocacy, taking over that aspect of it. Everyone has a unique story in terms of how they get into this field. There's a lot of people who go through a route of getting your master's degree in space policy, which you can do uh, in a handful of institutions. A lot of people then go to work for NASA or other nonprofit organizations like the American Astronomical Society or the American Geophysical Union. These kind of professional societies that represent the interests of scientists uh, and also the scientific field. The AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science, Planetary Society. Again, it's just this unique. It's we're solely focused on space, solely focused on planetary exploration, and because of that, I think we just have this really important role to play. That I get to really, do, with my colleagues, really get to push every day, which is the scientifically motivated, you know, space exploration and the broad, high-minded purposes behind it that that Carl Sagan, our one of our founders, elucidated years ago. Feel very extraordinarily fortunate uh, to be able to participate in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So m- many of our listeners and. Emily and I as the host have questions about the budgets for NASA in particular and sure. how they're put together and, and ultimately decided. So can you help us out? help us figure this out a little bit. What kind of factors go into budgetary considerations each year? How are how are budgets reached and decided and, and who makes these decisions? <laughs> it's uh, so again you, you may not be surprised to think
2: that uh, to hear that I think this is one of the most fascinating Questions and processes that that we go through. And I will preface it by saying there are layers of detail that we could go into that. But I'll start with a broad high level discussion. I will plug. I'll maybe take this opportunity to plug. I have a whole online course that is uh, available to members of the Planetary Society called Space Advocacy 101 that goes through this in greater detail. It's like a three or four hour course. And it helps you read the NASA budgets, understand the inputs, and then we use that as a baseline for saying this is where we then apply political pressure, uh, grassroots political pressure, to help guide that. But to your actual specific question, how do NASA's budgets come together? It is a somewhat chaotic and at the same (laughs) time structured process that has many, many different inputs. And I think that's the key here, is that there's no one decision maker in this, and In a sense, this is what is the difficult aspect of it, but also the big opportunity for space advocates is that it is a function of some sort of consensus. And identifying the key people in that consensus is ultimately the big picture. But big picture. So here we go. NASA's budget. So in in the United States, you have a process where Congress obviously is the final arbiter of spending federal dollars. However, Congress is always in a functional reactive position to what the White House, which is in a way NASA's boss, right? NASA is an executive agency that answers to the president. The president nominates the NASA administrator and the White House proposes NASA's budget every year. Right. So the baseline on a yearly basis, the White House through one of its agencies, the Office of Management and Budget, will release what they call you know the president's budget request which is if, if the White House had its way, if the president had their way, this is what NASA, how we would spend NASA on money and this is what NASA would do. That request is something like 700, 800 pages long. Uh, I recommend everyone read it. It's actually fascinating. <laughs> I love reading NASA's budget every year. It's such an amazing document in that it details what NASA is doing and you just, wow, this is an astonishing breadth of things that they do. This budget is the template for all of the political wrangling that then occurs in Congress, the one that we kind of generally associate with the political process. But it does not happen until this president's budget request comes out. That usually is in the spring of every year. Congress then, in an ideal case, will take the president's budget request, not just for NASA, but for the entire federal government. And Congress has 12 subcommittees, each with a different jurisdiction of the federal government, they all get a chunk of money. And they say, this is how much you get to spend on your, your your jurisdiction, your various agencies. They then allocate that through their own political wrangling internally in those committees. They release their draft budgets, one in the House and one in the Senate. They work through whatever process to pass those. They will be different. Then they have to then, what they call, conference them together. The House and Senate have to then agree on what nasa's budget will be the coming year then they go back to each chamber they vote on them again they say great thumbs up goes back to the president to sign it or veto it and ideally by october 1st the the start of the fiscal year uh in the united states you will have a new nasa budget that process has happened maybe once in the last 30 years
1: wow uh, on time (laughs) wow oh my Oh, that's crazy. So when does it normally get signed off then? Well,
2: <laughs> I'd say on average in the last 10, 20 years, probably December, early spring, so three to five months into the fiscal year. So you can see that there's a lot of inputs. And also in this, this particular democratic system, lots of veto points is the key thing. And so you can think about how many different points where If you want to start a new program, say if you want to go back to the moon, you know, why can't you just have the president give a speech and then then NASA goes back to the moon? The president has to give a speech. He has to tell the uh, leadership of his Office of Management and Budget to approve funds for NASA. NASA itself, I haven't even touched about how they put their president's budget request together. That's a delicate balance. They have their own internal politics. There's NASA centers spread throughout the country. They're reacting to their local needs (laughs) and politics. They have to assemble their own internal political coalition to support whatever they propose to the White House. And then, of course, you have this, you know, the, the appropriations committees, they have to decide on how much money to spend. The overall amount of money to be spent is decided by a completely separate committee, the committee on the budget. So you just you see there's just so many dozens and, dozens and dozens of dozens of different people that all have to ultimately coalesce on, let's give NASA more money. And at the usually at the end of the day, you know, Congress. <laughs> We talk about you know in physics you know energy can either be created nor destroyed. Uh, that's not the same with money. Uh, Congress can create or destroy money, however it it, it chooses. It's a, it's a fungible process, and so in theory Congress can create money and give it to NASA if they want to do. They can just borrow money from from the Treasury. In reality, usually that comes from somewhere. It's a zero sum game to some degree, and so you have to make a better argument for NASA than somewhere else. <laughs> and you, it's a it's a. I don't want to overwhelm your listeners with detail here, but there is a structure to it. The structure is loosely followed, but it is generally followed. And at the end of the day, these specific points, president's budget, congressional appropriations, subcommittee appropriations, and then you're you're allocating funding from what's called discretionary accounts. These all have regular and somewhat predictable, at least inputs and motivations. And you can understand the politics driving them, right? That in a representative democracy, which is discrete by geographic location, right? So in the United States, uh, and I'll just use this as our, as our default and we'll learn a lot of uh, democratic societies, your representatives in government represented a discrete geographical area. And they are then responsible for representing that area, not necessarily the country. You know, they have broader, obviously national commitments, but at the end of the day, their job as a representative of that district is uh, they're evaluated, they win or lose by their happiness of their specific constituents in that district. And so you can see how this ultimately go up from there as your baseline political motivation. At the end of the day, anything that the federal government does, particularly in areas like space exploration, which don't have you know not written into the US Constitution, somewhat removed conceptually from most Americans' daily lives, you have to have some very significant practical political grounding. Which is at the end of the day, to put it so crassly, what have you done for me (laughs) in my district to help me get reelected, make it relevant to me as a as a member of Congress or, or so forth? And this is why you see NASA, in a sense, spread out. This is why NASA contracts go out the door to pretty much a company in every district of the United States has some sort of NASA contract. And you can think about, is this the most efficient way to run a space agency? No, of course not. No one would just do that by efficiency. But you know what? Authoritarian systems can be very efficient, uh, but we don't live and don't want to live in authoritarian <laughs> yeah. systems. This is kind of the price of is that everyone gets a say. And we do things messily, frustratingly slow at times. But overall, when we get that buy-in of consensus, you have a lot of people had a chance to say something about it, had a lot of inputs into that process. And then you can make a lot of great things with that. It just won't be efficient. That's just
1: the price of doing business. Yeah, this is this is is as fascinating as I hoped it would be. So I'm going to throw a hypothetical at you. I am a scientist for NASA, and I've got this idea, which I think is going to be really cool, of sending a spacecraft to Venus, for example. And I've got a general consensus around the people I work with that this is a good idea. I pitch it to management. They think this is a good idea. They then want to pitch it to government, so they would pitch it to the president's advisors. I guess, is that roughly how things work when it gets further up the chain in NASA and they and then they pitch it somewhere? It, my point being is, how long from the point of having an idea and someone saying, yeah, that's a good idea, until we know it's funded so that work can start on it normally exists? So h- how long <laughs> is that gap, that purgatory of good idea to work starting at NASA?
2: This is another fascinating topic that I'm just obsessed with, the idea that, Little chemical reactions of neurons firing in someone's brain can have this cascading effect to ultimately create something in the physical world that's at Venus.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, the, yeah, like absolutely. There's a, a yeah. Ser-
2: you think about the series of steps that it takes from those first <laughs> little neurons firing. You know, this little, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever neurotransmitters going across those synapses, and you know, building this thing and flying it to Venus. It's extraordinary. and yeah. So there's this whole gestation process. So, I'd say, in the first couple decades of NASA's existence, the pathway you described is kind of how it worked, where scientists would have an idea, they'd get some buy off with other scientists, and they would be affiliated with some institution that had the heft to sell it, you know, whether it's well connected, like Caltech mm-hmm. or uh, the Applied Physics Laboratory, or you know some some kind of university industrial facility. That had connections to the political process that could then, it would have to go to NASA. NASA would have to bureaucratically buy into it and then sell it to the White House and then sell it to Congress. That was kind of the bad old days, particularly for science. Because what that meant is that everyone was constantly fighting for their own, or jockeying for their own position. Yeah. And you know, you can do some amazing things that way, but it it was an opaque process. It wasn't necessarily clear, you know, why you would do one mission over another. And only in the last 25, 30 years, the scientific community, at least, has tried to put a little more of a formalized process. And so to your specific question for something going to Venus, we now have different avenues of Pathways, you know, for this opportunity, for saying, I have a great idea, how do we get the funding for it? That is more open and more, you know, so you don't rely on those networks of connections and it's a bit more equitable in terms of how people can can gain access to this system. So there's a the process, of, we have in the United States, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. This is a independent body set up by Congress and actually signed into law, I think by, it's distinct, but supported by Congress, and it's the official scientific input body to the U.S. government and to, to Congress, I think, came in during the Lincoln administration wow. uh, during the Civil War. National Academies of Sciences is, is a you know very eminent scientist to gain. It's one of the highest achievements you can make as a scientist is to be included as a member in this board. Every 10 years, National Academies will put together a committee of eminent scientists in every one of NASA's five sciences, uh, planetary science, heliophysics, astrophysics, earth science, and space and biological sciences, which is basically low earth orbit, microgravity. Yeah. And they will say this, this community then takes input from their entire community, tons of white papers, argument. It'll take two years and they will argue and discuss and try to convince each other. And at the end of the day, they write this big consensus report called a decadal survey, right? A 10 year survey what we think are the biggest questions facing our scientific field. And here are the missions that we would prioritize to answer them. This is right. what we should do to push forward the process of science and our knowledge of the, you know, the most important questions that facing the, the field. So in planetary science, we have a decadal survey that just came out two years ago in 2022. And, prioritizes major what they call different classes of missions so flagship missions the big chunky missions like mars sample return multi-billion dollar missions then then this is the key to your specific question it has these two smaller what they call competed mission lines and the policy behind these is to encourage new ideas rapid response relatively you know rapid in quotes but relatively rapid response to new discoveries it's a, there are competed. And so every few years, NASA basically says, we have a pot of money. There's two mission classes. One is nominally around half a billion dollar. I think in reality, let's say it's like a, bi- a billion dollar mission class and one and a half billion dollar mission class. So every couple of years, NASA, says, hey, we have a billion dollars for you. Give us your best idea. Nice. And it's a pretty rigorous evaluation process. Uh, and the discovery class, this $1 billion, the, the low end mission of it. Anyone can basically propose anything. There's no specific guidance beyond the fact that it addressed some important scientific issue. The mid class, the New Frontiers class, uh, an example of that is the New Horizons mission at Pluto, Juno at Jupiter, Cyrus Rex, which just came back. These were all New Frontiers class missions. They have a list, of kind of a pre selected list of, you know, here's what we would want you to do. It's like go to send a probe to Saturn's atmosphere check out Io, check out Enceladus. You know, they're, they're obviously a bit more detailed than how I'm yeah. thinking, but do me the gist. And one of them is, is, a, is a Venus uh, orbiter and lander, I believe. And so it was through this scientific debate process and then through creating these open competitions that have really allowed a more equitable and responsive process for, I have a great idea for a mission to Venus. If I can get buy-in from institutions and buy-in from other scientists, I can pitch them and then have them be evaluated through a standardized, understandable process that is not just whoever happened to you know share the same frat brother back in the day, <laughs> who now is the procurement manager within the OMB or something. You know, it's, it's a much more standardized process. So that's nominally how it works. And this is actually why we have two missions to Venus, basically under some stages of uh, process right now, because they're both discovery selection missions, they're Right after the discovery or claim of discovery is phosphine in in Venus's atmosphere. These two missions that had been pushed for a long time uh, were selected. Now, your question, how long does it take from that first idea to mission selection? If you get selected, on average, you look at a lot of these teams, they've been working for 10 to 15 years. Wow. Just to get to that point. And that's before you start building it. it. Takes about five years to build one of these things. And then wherever you're going... As my boss likes to say, there's a lot of space in space. <laughs> uh, you have to be very patient for these missions, and you, so you think about every time you see the scientists in a room celebrating the landing of a Mars rover, or you know, an orbital insertion of a mission at, a, at an outer planet. These are people who probably started working on that 20 years ago, and so you, it's hard to imagine the level of satisfaction. And, and excitement that they must be feeling but it is a long process that takes incredible amounts of patience dedication and consistency and is really is actually one of the big challenges facing the field of planetary science now particularly if you want to study outer planets which are very far away is that you have basically one mission in an entire it spans an entire career and we're starting to start to consider missions that might be spanning a person's lifetime much less a career how do you do that and how do you maintain a viable scientific career, a, a discipline or, or field if you start to pursue things that are beyond the scope, you know, these kind of uh, pharaonic pyramidal processes that take the lifetime or more that you will never see the end of? Can you have a, a valid career and attract people to your field to do that? And it's very difficult question.
1: Whenever I see those rooms of people celebrating, I always think about the missions that haven't happened and the mm. people that are sitting there either waiting for approval, but that may never come. And yeah. uh, that, that's that got to be torturous. You know you've got a good idea. You know it's great. Just this can't happen. It's
2: a very, uh, I would say Darwinian, but there's no method of evolution, really. It's a very, it's it's a tough. There's always more good ideas than there is money to fund them. Yeah. And you, you're right. You, particularly if you have a lot of these mission selection processes, they'll shave down from... 30, 40 selection uh, proposals down to a handful, three or four. And then they select one or two from those three or four. Every one of those top five functionally is completely valid. (laughs) Right. There's there's not, you know, at that point, they're all incredible missions. And you're you're choosing one, not because it's substantially better, but just through whatever immediate needs, technical viability, engineering viability, who knows, right? Or just someone had lunch, you know, had just ate lunch versus didn't eat lunch before they made the decision. At a certain point, yeah, you're losing you know, every selection is a somewhat of a uh, mixed feelings, right? Because you yeah. see what wasn't then invested in. There's some incredible missions. I remember the Titan boat was one of those, I think was a potential selection in 2012 where they were just going to plop down in one of the seas of Titan. Float around and this would have been an incredible mission, but they chose InSight to land on Mars instead. We would be landing on Titan right around now if they had gone the other way. That doesn't say that one mission was better than another, but it reminds you again, every selection is a lost opportunity to do something else really exciting. It's a big cosmos out there, right? And so it's very hard to just let those go. But then, you know, again, if we have a healthy process, if we have healthy budgets, We have a healthy political system. The nice thing is, is that people can reapply. They can try again. A lot of missions that do get selected, it's their third or fourth time's applying. Wow. Mm. Okay. Our next question.
0: What kinds of things influence, say, the budgets for uncrewed missions versus crewed ISS and future Artemis missions?
2: Yeah. There's a real important distinction between... Crude and uncrude processes. So we talked about this decadal survey process through the National Academies. That's just for the sciences in NASA. Right. And the whole decision process for human spaceflight is completely different. And I think one of the key, you go down to the base foundation. Why is that so? Why don't we have a decadal process for human spaceflight? Why don't we have a broad consensus? Why for so many years did it go moon, Mars, moon, Mars, orbit, Mars, asteroid, whatever, before con- kind of coalescing at Artemis. I think the answer is you can get a bunch of scientists in a room and even though scientists do nothing but argue, <laughs> that's why they're <laughs> scientists, right? They love to argue with each other. At the end of the day, you have some external force that drives consensus and that is everyone may not exactly agree on the priority of the scientific questions, but everyone who's doing science because they're investigating the natural world, there is an external reality out there, they can ultimately agree that there's, these are the most important questions. It drives consensus. These are the big questions that motivate us right now. Human spaceflight does not have that. Human spaceflight exists. It's almost a function of our internal state as a culture, as a society, as a species. There's nothing, maybe you could extend very long-term human survival, right? Multi-planet species. But in the immediate short term, it is a political exercise. That and it always has been from the, from its dawn in, the, in as a cold War mm-hmm. extension of the front of the Cold War. And that allows a lot of like a lot of flexibility for why we send humans into space, but also it, sometimes you're paralyzed with flexibility. Well, why is Mars better than the moon or vice versa? or why should we go naturally? Like, it's hard to say it's hard to drive that consensus, absent this external force to corral everyone together. So in human spaceflight, it's much more of a function of politics and uh, geopolitical interests, not, not just domestic politics, which is a big part of human spaceflight, particularly uh, how NASA has structured Artemis, but geopolitics. And I would say that that's really the key aspect of it. Human spaceflight remains an ultimate one of the most potent symbols for technological capability, industrial might uh you know when you name it national prestige and power and you've seen this for the other nations that have invested significantly in human spaceflight to this day uh notably i think with the rise of uh, of china and its human spaceflight program it is primarily focusing on the symbol international prestige driven aspect of it and the scientific side is covered by uncrewed scientific robotic missions and that just makes it much harder and much more dynamic of a question about why we invest in what we invest. And I think that's led to the uncertainty over the years, right? So when we've had the most consistent and direct funding uh, for human spaceflight is during Apollo. And what did Apollo need to do? It had a very clear mission in a very clear uh, situation of perceived intense competition with another technological superpower competing for newly decolonized nations who were actively choosing their own modes of political self-constitution. And Apollo was the symbol to drive that. Once the United States, you know, won the 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 moon race, the motivation for Apollo ended and the funding for it ended as well. Uh, and human spaceflight has been, in a sense, looking for that unifying political region to a, uh, align it with national interest ever since. And, and Artemis, I think, has made the strongest case for that. And, and no coincidence, we've seen Artemis now have this, the biggest and most important and most likely play to return humans to the moon since Apollo because it's starting to lay into these some of these national and international uh, lines of competition and
1: national prestige. How protected is the science away from human spaceflight? Obviously, NASA's budget I'm, I'm plucking numbers out of the air. Say it's ten ten billion dollars. Is it earmarked that five billion of it is for science and five billion is it for human activity, or is that does that fluctuate? And if they decide to spend a load of money on Artemis, for example, does that mean that we lose science and, and uncrewed missions, or are they protected in some way? Every year, it's a dynamic uh, right. field.
2: There, there's nothing guaranteed. Uh, it, it, so this is what's, a, it, it's called discretionary funding. This is the part of the, <laughs> the U.S. budget every year. The U.S. spends on average, I think roughly at this point six trillion a year. Crazily enough, one, all, most of that's actually just mandated by law. Uh, and it's not what Congress fights over every year. You, you would think that the part that Congress fights over every year is the biggest part. It's really not. It's about a yeah. quarter of it. Of that quarter, that's what's called discretionary, you know, hence the name. And Congress could just decide to spend zero. Theoretically, it'd (laughs) be an insane thing to do, but they could. It's up to them. It's their discretion of how to spend that money. And all of NASA is discretionary. So there is nothing fixed about the relative breakdowns of what NASA gets money for on science or human spaceflight technology. Also, the first A in in NASA, aeronautics, um, is a completely distinct, almost completely distinct part of the, the agency. For this discussion, NASA's budget is around $25 billion last year, and roughly half of that goes to human spaceflight-related activities, and a little less than about 30-some, 30 35, let's say roughly a third, a little more than a third goes to science. The rest is kind of overhead, infrastructure, technology, and aerodynamics. That has been somewhat consistent for years, but it's completely malleable, right. and Will increases in human spaceflight take money away from science? Historically, that's been the case. Absolutely. And the political power of the human spaceflight program at NASA, uh, domestic political influence is just far higher. It's far more symbolic. It's a higher profile activity. It's a nature of because it's more expensive, it gets more attention and Mm -hmm. has more people invested in it, right? Uh, And it tends to steamroll over science. And it's not just hypothetical. This year, we're, we're looking at the first contraction of NASA's budget in 12 years. And Artemis is getting the money that the president requested. It's growing. And you can look at the amount that it's growing. And it's almost one-to-one taken from the amount that science, NASA science division has decreased. So I, it, it's not just a hypothetical. This year, when faced with a flat budget, they science went, I can't, Completely, a hundred percent, say because money is kind of fungible. But it, it, it's notable that the amount that Artemis increased was roughly the amount that science decreased, and I don't think that's an accident.
1: So, so the uh, the fact that it's been delayed again must be. Music to the ears of the scientists. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> or not. <laughs> it is an
2: ongoing frustration. It is. I mean, it's human spaceflight. I mean, it's an order of magnitude more expensive, right? Because every mission is a sample. mission. Yeah. All of your astronauts need to come back. Yeah, yeah, your reliability expectations are far higher. The cost of losing, you know, just you're bringing a bubble of Earth with you into space and, mm. and back. You do not have to do with robots. And so we talk about, you know, lower cost missions tend to get way less political support because again, they have a smaller coalition of people invested in that project because there's just not as much money to go around. So again, perversely, the bigger a project is, even if it's going over budget and, and Artemis has and will continue to, it's just any human space program has done that. It's not unique. I'm, I'm trying to be Honest, but not super critical of it. I mean, it, it's it's a human space program to go to the moon. We should not diminish the difficulty of Absolutely. that. And we should not assume we can do it on the cheap. We've done mm-hmm. it once. In all of human history, we've sent humans to the surface of the moon once. One nation has done it once. That is, not, can, <laughs> that is not an easily extrapolatable data point. Like we have no idea if we can do it more cheaply. We have no idea if we can do it more safely. We have no idea if commercial will help or hinder that process. We just yeah. literally have no idea because we have no way to draw that many lessons from Apollo. It's so unique. So Artemis will continue to get more expensive. Uh, the priority of any human spaceflight mission is the safe return of the astronauts. Any other priority, including scientific priorities, is far second to that. And that's an, an ongoing process consistent and probably will forever be one of the tensions between the scientific community and human spaceflight, because there's just a fundamental difference in kind uh, between the motivations and the goals of human spaceflight and, and robotic science spaceflight.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Robots
1: don't need a uh, life support. Yeah, well, not yet anyway. Right. I'm going to press stop right now. And we're going to come back with this next week and talk more about Mars and how elections... Uh, affect all of this but I think that's a really good place just to wrap up for this week thank you very much Casey we'll speak to you next week
0: time to get your booster shot you're listening to Space and Things
1: I could listen to Casey all day long I learnt so much there so so much I had no idea how, how these things worked I know Emily and I have mentioned this many times before we don't know how this works um, and now I've got a better understanding of it which is great I, I feel like my one of my questions there was so naive. Oh, so you've got $10 million, how does that get allocated? To me, it was a complete different process to how he de- has described it. So I'm really glad to get some clarification on how that works. And to know that actually, there is some method to the madness as a result of years of them doing this. They kind of know how to do it, which you would think, you know, obviously. But with how crazy it is for anything to get funding via Congress and the Senate it's great that they actually have a system of of this uh, decadal survey which enables them to focus on a few things and know that they can channel some funding into projects based on that which I think is 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 really cool what were your thoughts Emily
0: kind of uh, along the same lines as yours I am not a space policy expert I am aware that politics does have a lot to contribute to space flight Um, especially with the elections coming up. I was kind of floored, you know, at the the conversations about how missions become missions because there are scientists out there, you know, their whole lives can be dedicated to one space mission because a lot of them have very specialized knowledge. And imagine getting through all that work, proposing it, yada, yada. It doesn't get accepted, you know? I mean, it, it really is kind of up to the whims of, you know, the decadal survey and what they think is important and really up to the budget. So that to me was illuminating because I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, I'll propose, they probably propose a project and it gets approved and everything's happy and everybody's, no, it's not like that. You could work on something for years, propose it, and it looks like it'll get through, but it doesn't. And it might be a perfectly valid exploration, like Casey mentioned, the, the Titan boat mission. I remember hearing about that years ago and I was yeah. like, man, that is awesome. Like, that is cool. Like, that's a really novel idea because Titan has sort of the wa- the ice and the water ice on it. You know, it's got, allegedly, it's got lakes and stuff. And I'm like, man, that would be a cool mission to see what that's like. And it's a very novel idea. Like, it's not just, you know, putting a lander on something and it didn't get through. That's not to say something similar to that couldn't be approved someday, but there's so much that goes into these decisions and there's so many things that don't make it. And um, I think it really puts it into my consciousness that, you know, a lot of these missions, these scientists work on these forever. I follow a lot of planetary science missions. Obviously, uh, I I think we both talked about this a lot. We followed the Voyagers for years. The Voyagers are older than both of us. So we've uh, followed those for years. And You know, it's amazing how, to me, these things get approved and kind of put into being, you know, versus other things that sound incredible, but they just don't make it. You never hear about them again. Or you may hear about them later, but they're in a wildly different form. Like um, back in the 80s, they wanted to have a, a Venus orbiting radar mapper, and it was very sophisticated. It was, if you read about it on paper, it sounds awesome because Venus is not very well explored. It was canceled And eventually it became, it sort of became Magellan, but it was not as sophisticated as what originally was planned. I'm sure there are other factors that affect missions that have nothing to do with its sophistication at all. You know, it's just kind of the whims of what people decide on a particular day. You know, did somebody eat lunch that day? (laughs) type of thing. To me, it's just a fascinating conversation. It was illuminating for me because I think, as somebody who sits on the outside of it, you know, and kind of is looking in, who doesn't have really any um, direct involvement in space policy, you know, sometimes it's like, man, why didn't that make it? I think these
1: questions and these issues are very important. For, for every project that gets green lit, which we can celebrate, there are other projects which that means they aren't going to get lit at this stage. It's great that things are happening, but unfortunately that means the other yeah. things can't happen. And and obviously, talking of which, this is very topical, but Artemis getting delayed has a knock-on effect on this. So for those of you who may not know, uh, the Artemis program has had some delays announced. So Artemis 2, which was due to launch humans to the moon... Go, uh, going around the moon for the first time since 1972. Uh, that was due to happen in November of this year and it's now been pushed back to September 2025 and the Artemis 3 moon landing, which was originally targeted for late 2025, will now aim for September 2026. Uh, Safety is our top priority, they said, and to give Artemis teams more time to work through the challenges with first-time developments, operations, and integration, we're giving more time on Artemis 2 and 3. Now, obviously, that sounds very fair. However, in the context of this conversation, when these delays happen and more time means more money, and as Casey has said, human spaceflight is a lot more expensive. And as a result of these delays... What planetary science missions or other NASA projects are we going to be missing out? That is something which, when something we want to happen is happening, but it may be delayed or even when it gets announced at all, that does mean that the other things don't happen. So it'd be interesting to see what the ramifications of this Artemis delay is on planetary science. Yeah, so... Of of course, as we said earlier, there will be a part two of this uh, in which we're going to talk about the Mars sample return and other, a few other little things. So that's going to come up next week. So there's plenty more with Casey next week. So if you've enjoyed that, you've got that coming out. But of course, to find out more about Casey and perhaps go and listen to his podcast uh, or read his his monthly newsletter, all those links will be in the show notes as well as his as as well as his social media profiles and. Our Patreon subscribers get that full interview, including the stuff that's happening next week, and you can watch all of that right now. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things.
0: Ready to fly with the Space and Things crew? Go to patreon.com forward slash space and things to find out how to join.
1: Okay, Emily, so what has caught your eye in spaceflight this week?
0: I sent Dave the article. This article is actually from Mashable.com. But NASA has finally opened the OSIRIS-REx asteroid samples from asteroid Bennu. Um, in September, the uh, sample from the asteroid landed, I believe, in the Utah desert. Hard to believe it was that many months ago. We were just talking about it, in seems, so that's kind of crazy. Basically, what happened was there were two screws on the uh, spacecraft that were... Uh, Keeping the lid on the the samples, uh, I do want to add there were some samples that were kind of around that area because uh, the spacecraft took so so much of the uh, asteroid that they had plenty of it, but uh, they couldn't get the lid off the main sample, which they took. Basically, what happened was they spent uh, three months to try to get the lid off, uh, which contained the bulk, and this is from the article, The Bulk of Rocks and Dust from the Asteroids. Basically, what NASA did was uh, to remove this the, the lid off the uh, stuck uh, spacecraft. Is sort of a, akin to, you know, you got a Coke bottle at home. You ha- you're having a hard time opening, so you have to make a an opener. You have to make an opener to get it open so you don't shred your hand up or something like that. They basically had to make a few new tools to unscrew the uh, fasteners because they didn't want to damage the sample inside. OSIRIS-REx is the first U.S. mission to return an asteroid sample and bring it to Earth. There have been other uh, sample return missions. I believe Stardust was one of them, and I think, um, I want to say Japan had a few of them as well. So it's not the first ever sample return mission. I think it's the first U.S. asteroid uh, sample return mission. This is something we're going to talk about on next week's show. Not this week's show, but next week's show is Mars sample return missions and um, how they're kind of up in the air right now and sort of the ramifications surrounding, you know, if these will be done or not because they're very expensive. But so far, the uh, stuff from Bennu has been uh, determined to be very carbon rich, but I'm sure they'll, they're will they going to find out a lot more just by uh, checking out these asteroids. So that, that was a very cool mission. I wouldn't call it magic. It's a lot of hard work, but it sure seems like magic. You know, just
1: unbelievable stuff. So, very cool. So, Dave, what's caught your eye this week? Uh, I'm going to go popular culture. So, we had the finale of For All Mankind this week. Regular listeners will know, Emily and I are big fans of For All Mankind. Uh, It was season four. Yep. And I'll be honest, on the whole, it's not been my favorite season. But I still have really enjoyed it, and it's only... Because they've set the bar so high on the previous seasons, uh, which I, I didn't think it hit the, hit the high notes of previous ones. But I still thoroughly enjoyed watching this season. By the time we got to the end, I already can't wait for the next season. So I'm um, looking forward to that. Also, there's a new movie out, or a 50-minute film, uh, about Apollo 15, uh, which I haven't watched yet, but I'm seeing a lot of people talk about. Produced by David Scott and his yep. daughter, Dr. Tracy Scott. And it's been put together by two Scottish people, which is lovely to see. Uh, David Woods and Ken McTaggart. This looks great. I'll put a link in the show notes. I've reached out to them. We, we might talk to them at some point. Obviously, we've got a lot coming up, but that is looking like it will happen at some point as awesome. well. But yes, if you've got 50 minutes and want to learn more about Apollo 15, apparently there's loads of unseen footage well worth checking out. So check the show notes for more information.
0: This is what space enthusiasm sounds like. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Dave Giles and Emily Carney.
1: Okay, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back, as we've said, with the second part of the Casey Dryer interview. Uh, so we won't have a what's caught our eye in spaceflight because obviously we'll be in Washington, D.C., exploring the Air and Space Museum yes. the Smithsonian, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and it's exciting for us to be back together again. So you may have noticed, listeners, on our social media, that we've been posting some images of some new merchandise. And a few of you have ordered some items already, so thank you very much for your support. I'll continue to add new products and designs over the next few months. Well, as long as we're doing this, I'm going to keep adding more stuff.
0: Yes, it's good-looking stuff, and I I need to get myself one of those mugs. I'm a sucker for a mug. I love them. Also, (laughs) as always, we have to shout out to our Patreon subscribers who power this podcast. Uh, Podcasts are wonderful things which are free to listen to, but they are time-consuming to make. So those who support us to do that, uh, they really make our lives better. So head over to patreon.com slash space and things to sign up if you're willing and able. Uh, We've just done this month's prize draw for our Patreon subscribers, and it was won by Joanna Kerwin. So Dave will get in contact with you and sort out your prize, a space book perhaps, or maybe one of our new merchandise items. But anyway, don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. You've
2: been listening to Space and Things.